The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. We have uh, considered men and the moment, our cultural situation. We've considered men and the church as it relates to the Lordship of Christ and our current situation. Uh, we have considered men and our idols as one of the hindrances to seeing uh, our realization of our identity in Christ manifest. And finally, this session, I want to talk about men and our orders. Men and our orders. Before I do that, I just want to uh, flag something up to you on the... Uh, October 19th, Saturday, October the 19th, which is just a couple of weeks away, the Ezra Institute is hosting a conference at Heritage Seminary in Cambridge. It's just a day conference. There are posters for it actually on the table over there. It's called Reclaiming a Biblical Vision of Sexual Ethics. It's part of our How Then Shall We Answer series, Reclaiming a Biblical Vision of Sexual Ethics, and uh, as well as myself and a colleague of mine, we have Dr. Peter Jones from California coming up to speak at that conference, where we're going to be uh, discussing, talking about, unpacking what has happened with respect to sexuality in our culture and what the way out is for the church. I did want to mention that to you because I think it is especially relevant to men. We're the ones who are having to raise our children uh, in really what is a sexualized culture that has never been experienced before in the West. We're, we're facing challenges now today that have never been seen before, and the uh, degree of paganization of sexuality certainly hasn't been seen for 1,600 years. Um, many of us are not fully prepared and uh, equipped to deal with it. This conference will uh, be dealing with that subject. I would really encourage you to come to that. It's 25 bucks. I mean, even if you're Scottish, you've got to be interested in that. If you're coming as a couple, 40 bucks for a husband and wife, and if a whole family's coming, it's only $65 for the day. So I would just want to really encourage you to come to that, because that is the wedge issue of our age, sexuality. That's, that is the battlefront of the cultural transformation that's taking place. If you want to understand it and uh, begin to talk about how you can respond Um, We would really encourage you to come to that. And if there are pastors, leaders, ministry leaders, um, missionary group leaders, whatever, if you're in Christian leadership, uh, we have a uh, a free, so if you're Dutch, you're going to love this one. It's not even 25 bucks. This is free, and it happens of all places at the Mississauga Golf and Country Club. Okay, it's hosted by the EICC. It's a stunning day. Uh, at this country club, um, in which this one coming up, (coughs) again, we're going to be talking about uh, sexuality in the church. So it will be a a different content from the conference. This one is particularly for leaders. So if you are in church leadership, that is a free day, and that is on Wednesday, um, sorry, yes, Wednesday, October 16th. So the Wednesday before the conference, if you're in leadership, Wednesday, October 16th, and that will cost you nothing. And Dr. Peter Jones will be speaking with me at that. So I just wanted to uh, take the uh, opportunity to flag those things up to you. 
Men and our orders. Turn with me to Psalm 1. I'm just going to read two passages to you. Psalm 1, a familiar text to you all. And then I'm going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. But let's begin with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season. Its leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Psalm 1, in many respects, is a summary of the entire message of the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 1 focuses upon one aspect of the application of Psalm 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 5 through 11. 5 through 11. Now the end of the commandment is charity, or love, out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, from which some have swerved and turned aside to vain janglings, which literally means meaningless talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind. Your translation probably says homosexuals there for man-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. The psalmist says that if we want to be blessed men, that is actually uh, happy men. The word in uh, the Beatitudes, in Jesus' exposition of the law, blessed is, makarioi or makarios, means happy, literally. If we want to be blessed men, 
our concern must be with our marching orders, which are given to us in the law of God. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We live in a lawless uh, generation and a lawless context. The Bible tells us that sin is lawlessness. That's how it defines sin. The Apostle John says sin is lawlessness. And Paul tells us in his letter to Titus that Christ has come to redeem us from all lawlessness. To redeem us from all lawlessness that we might be made the righteousness of God. That we might actually live and walk in the righteousness of God. The significance of this is, I think, highlighted in the fact that Satan in the Bible is referred to as the man of lawlessness, antinomos. He is the lawless one. You cannot read Scripture and escape the significance and power and centrality of the law of God to our lives. Jesus spends the bulk of the Sermon on the Mount expounding the law of God. He goes up onto a mountain and he expounds God's law. And he tells us in Matthew 5 that not one punctuation mark is going to be removed from God's law till heaven and earth pass away. Now, the significance of this for our time ought immediately to be obvious to us. We've spent some time in our uh, our conference together, talking about the problem, the social collapse and so forth, idolatry. What is part of the solution? What is part of the solution to the situation we face in our time? In the ninth century AD, King Alfred the Great began codified English law with the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm not going to do an analysis of our knowledge of the Ten Commandments, but I wonder if I asked us today how many of us could name the Ten Commandments in order, how many of us would actually be able to do it? I mean, there's only ten. <laughs> there's ten. Ten Commandments. And Jesus tells us that all the law and the prophets, he said, is summarized. He could boil it down to two. The meaning of the law was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And the apostle Paul tells us the very nature of love in Romans 13 when he tells us that love is the fulfillment of the law. Well, English law, which was, of course, Canadian law, in its first codification, began with the Ten Commandments. In A.D. 1540, some six centuries later, King Henry VIII was establishing cities of refuge based on the biblical model. And the Puritan settlers of New England self-consciously planned their commonwealth around the pattern of biblical law, as you can see from things like the Order of the General Court of Massachusetts in 1636, 
and the general laws of the Plymouth Colony in 1658. So that America was very literally built on biblical law. English canon law was so substantially drawn from biblical law that in reference to biblical regulations on inheritance and English inheritance law, the 19th century jurist Sir Frederick Pollock said of Numbers 27, 1 through 11, that I, and I quote, that it is the earliest recorded case which is still of authority. What he's saying is that as a lawyer in the work in the middle of the 19th century, I'm still referring to Numbers 27, 1 through 11 to understand inheritance law. When the civil government of Israel in the Old Testament was established, God addressed the 70 elders of the people and he poured out his spirit upon them. The first Pentecost in Scripture was actually a civic event at the ordination of civil authorities in Numbers 11, 16 through 17. And then we see a similar Pentecost moment occurring at the anointing of Saul when the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he is anointed king of Israel in the second form of civil government in Israel, monarchy, in its transition from being a commonwealth. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 10, verses 1 through 7. And the early church continued these rites of anointing and coronation. And the form of the rite which highlights the role of God's law in our history remains with us very potently in the oath required of our queen. Now, we may feel somewhat disconnected from the monarchy in in Canada, but the queen is still the head of state here. We still have a governor, and even though the monarchy certainly has dwindled in its significance in our lives as the the foundation of our culture, it certainly hasn't. Now, the oath required of Queen Elizabeth II stated this. This was the question that was put to her. Our queen, will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? And after this oath, the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland brought the Bible to the Queen, saying this, Our gracious Queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. And this was a very, very clear reference back to the anointing of Solomon. After this, the Archbishop of York presents the queen with the sword of state, during which she is charged to wield the sword of justice in God's authority by stopping the growth of iniquity, protecting the church, defending orphans and widows, restoring, punishing, and reforming where required in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then with the, the orb with the cross is then given to Elizabeth. So the, the scepter with the orb on it and the cross on it is handed to Elizabeth, and this is what the archbishop declares. Receive this orb set under the cross 
And remember that the whole world is subject to the power and empire of Christ, our Redeemer. Now, that was the last coronation service. We've just celebrated the Jubilee. Now, we might say that in the <clears throat> 50s, the faith, this kind of faith was only there in part, even in, certainly in the church. I think the queen took her vows seriously. And even if some of the faith was lacking, it does show us the abiding relevance and authority of God's Word and God's law to every aspect of our lives. Because this service declared that the civil order is directly under and accountable to God. And this is what our age, our current age, is kicking against. Formerly, when the incoming President of the United States took the oath of office, he did so not on a closed Bible, as he does today, but, on, but it's, it's significant that the President of the United States still has to take an oath of office with his hand on Scripture, is it not? But it didn't used to be a closed Bible. It used to be a Bible open to Deuteronomy 28, which invokes the blessing and cursing of God upon a nation for obedience or disobedience to the gospel. These oaths were taken with great seriousness because God's law was seen as a serious matter. God was taken seriously. And all this reveals the fact that the law of God has had a continuous history and has been an object of relevance that makes it completely unique amongst legal systems. But its relevance is not just for, you might say, well, that's all very interesting for those uh, who might be interested in history, Joe, and the history of law and so on. What real relevance does it have to me today? The relevance is the fact that we cannot limit biblical law to Western history as having shaped the Western world if we are going to be part of being Christ's mouthpiece for the recovery of our own time. It still remains, even amongst legal scholars today, a source of relevance for dealing with legal dilemmas. In fact, Jonathan Burnside, who is professor of law at the University of Bristol in England and reader in biblical law there, says this. I want you to listen closely to what he says about biblical law. And this was published by Oxford University Press quite recently, this book. Biblical law continues to exert a hold over popular culture at a basic level, including the structure of the working week and the idea of a day of rest the constraints placed upon political authority, the use of everyday language, such as references to a scapegoat, the idea of mercy, employee rights, and the special significance historically attached to marriage and the monogamous family unit. The word covenant, which is prominent in biblical law, used to be the standard word for a contract in English law and is still used in the law of property today. Biblical law is also remarkable for its revolutionary breadth and depth of vision. It has the imaginative power to disturb the world. 
A great deal of modern law is an indirect engagement with biblical law. For example, the abolition of the English laws of blasphemy in 2008. That was in England. But often it is so implicit that we are not aware of it. We have taken our understanding of biblical law for granted for so long that it has become unfamiliar. This is the imminence of biblical law. It is part of our culture, but it is alien. Biblical law does not function in relation to English law or U.S. law as an external or parallel body of law like Islamic religious law or Sharia. This is because unlike Sharia law, biblical law is nascent in the history of English law, that it is present, it's in there, and so continues to be an influence on many citizens. It is simply unrealistic to suggest that we live in a wholly secular legal system, nor have politicians been successful in finding a dominant alternative discourse to the ethical language of the Bible. In other words, that's a fairly lengthy way of saying every modern engagement with law, where we are changing laws, is an indirect engagement with biblical law that undergirds our culture. You see, once you change the definition of marriage, for example, it's just a contemporary example, you have essentially taken biblical law out of our understanding of marriage. So what does that mean? That means that the next things coming down the pipe are going to be polyamory, polygamy, bestiality, in fact, these are already being talked about, and pedophilia. Because once you have taken away and removed this fundamental definition in a revolution against biblical law, there is no logical stopping point to progressivism. It's just a return to a pagan, chaotic concept of society. Now, the imminent character of biblical law isn't just true in the political and legal spheres. It's true in the churches where we are in part responsible for our cultural amnesia about biblical faith and law. So I saw some of you smiling when I asked how many of you knew the Ten Commandments or how many of, you, how many of us have taught our children the Ten Commandments. Now, in a sense, biblical law is nascent in our churches in that we sort of assume and presuppose the truth of the Bible and Uh, God's moral standards and God's moral absolutes. But when we're actually asked for specifics, what are they and how do they relate to different situations in our lives and families and cultures, we're stuck in general. Because in the West since World War II, in general, the law of God has been pushed to the periphery. It used to be the case, for example, that Protestant churches of almost every stripe would recite the law of God every week in our services. Part of the communion service, take the prayer book, for example, in the Anglican church, included before uh, absolution, that is before uh, confession and forgiveness of sin, the law of God was recited. I mean, after all, if you don't know God's law, you don't know what sin is, according to the Apostle Paul, because without the law, there is no knowledge of sin. Paul says, I would not know sin but by the law. We used to display the Ten Commandments in lots of places in a very prominent position. In our courts, all the crown courts used to have the Ten Commandments displayed. Today, the Supreme Court in the United States still has Moses and the Ten Commandments. Right there on the exterior of the building. 
it was kept in the forefront of people's minds, and that contributed to a God-fearing society. When I was growing up, for example, and I'm only, I'm still 39, I don't turn 40 till next year. When I was growing up in England, it was uh, quite possible to pay the milkman, because, you know, we used to have a milk float that used to drive around the neighborhood and drop off milk in bottles. You could pay the milkman by taking cash and leaving it in the top of the bottle and leaving it on your doorstep. Nobody would take it. What's changed? Well, steadily, the law of God has been pushed to the periphery. Here in Canada, you used to be able to leave your doors unlocked, your keys in the car. This was the common experience of people living in Toronto. Toronto the good, the city of churches. That's what it was known as. Toronto the good, the city of churches. Well, it's, now the, it's still the city of church buildings, but isn't Toronto the good anymore? You see, <clears throat> implicit in the idea of law is that law is a form of command whose validity is derived from the reality of sovereign power and the fact of habitual obedience on the part of most citizens. Law, God's law, is a value-processing system for our lives and for society. A value processing system. Let me illustrate what that means for a moment. Laws, God's law, teaches us values. Not just in the sense that it gives us moral precepts, because comprehended in the term law is not just the precept, that is, you shall do or you shan't do. It is the penalty that's associated with the precept. And that gives us a value structure so that if I'm driving home tomorrow on the 401 and I'm doing 180 km's in my Trans Am and I'm supposed to be doing 110 and a police officer pulls me over and uh, he says to me, what do you think you're doing? I'm going to impound your vehicle. And here's, you're going to get a $400 fine or whatever it might be. And I might, court might decide that I lose my license for six months or something like that. Now, you would, most of us would look at that and say, well, that's fair. You see, you're driving without due care and attention. Uh, it's criminal negligence to drive at that sort of speed on, the, on that particular road. Uh, you're endangering other drivers. You should be fined. You probably ought to lose your license for six months. Something along that line. But what if the magistrate says when I'm in the court... You're sentenced to 10 years in prison and you're $20,000 fine. Now, what would you say to that? You would look at that and you would say, this is tyrannical nonsense. This is absurd. Whilst you agree with the precept, don't speed, criminal negligence, you would disagree with the penalty. You say well, the value system there is out of kilter, especially if the next guy into the courtroom has been charged with rape and he gets a $50 fine. So you see that the penalty is involved in teaching us the value of the precept. So that law as a whole, which constitutes precept and penalty in God's Word, teaches us values. So when... 
a culture like ours begins to alter its law and penalties, you can be sure that the values of the culture are changing and there is a new sovereign or a new God, a new lawgiver behind that system. You see, we've been talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ, his kingship and his kingdom being far above all rule and authority. Have you ever heard of a king who does not have a kingdom? Christ is king. But what are you king? What is he king of? If he doesn't have a kingdom, what sort of a king is he? Now, Scripture tells us that the whole cosmos is his kingdom. He's the absolute ruler. Every kingdom, every scepter, just like Queen Elizabeth II, must have a kingdom law. And the source of law is the sovereign. And the source of sovereignty is the God of that system, of that society. So if you go to Pakistan, where my father worked for 15 years, or you go to Saudi Arabia, you will find there a different law, Sharia law, which is Islamic law, which has a different source of sovereignty and a different sociological outworking. There is a different source, there is a different king or sovereign behind the system. So law, whether you've thought about this much or not, is a daily aspect. The value, the teaching uh, parameters of the law instruct you daily and shape your life. So when we in Canada, for example, repealed the death penalty for practically everything by the turn of the the century, by the year 2000, we retained them, we retained certain death penalties for offenses against the state, mutiny, treason. We abolished the last of them because of that buffoon Trudeau who started the process. But the actual punishments for things like murder and rape have steadily been doing this. Now, what does that tell you, for example, when in the, with the omnibus bill of abortion and homosexuality in 1969 when we decriminalized sodomy and we decriminalized the murder of the unborn, what did that say about the value of sexuality in the family and the value of life? Because law is a value processing system. These are statements about laws, in the end are statements about values in our culture. And the rules in your own home that govern your house, are statements about what you and your wife value in your home and for your children. And the penalties that you may or may not attach to them. If the divine goals for the world remain those of the kingdom of God expounded in Scripture, then the Bible gives us a value processing system based on the sovereign authority of God. And we are called to obedience to it if we are to flourish as human beings, if we are to be the blessed who don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of the scorners, but delight ourselves instead in the law of the Lord and meditate on it. Think about it. What did Jesus say about those who teach and do God's law? Well, I hope you know the passage in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. He says, those who teach and do these things shall be called great, where? in the kingdom of heaven. And those who disobey them and teach others to do likewise, they're going to be called least 
in the kingdom of heaven. That indicates that there are some people who are in the kingdom of God in the church who will teach against God's law and they'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Because they're still in the kingdom of heaven. But they're going to be the least in it. You see, the Bible is a covenant document and a legal document. And covenant always includes law with blessings and curses described for the breaking of God's law. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is covenantal. So when Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples, at the hour Passover, he cuts covenant. And he says, this cup is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Two things that always come together with any covenant in the Bible, law and blood. Law and blood. Christ had already given his law through Moses and expounded it on the, in the Sermon on the Mountainside. And at the table of the Lord there, the blood of the covenant is set forth. And that's why Paul tells us, and I think, it's, I think in his letter to the Corinthians, that how we participate in the Lord's Supper has significant consequences. That if we eat and drink in an unworthy manner, he says, some of you, he says, are sick and have died. So he says, warns the church and says, don't eat and drink in an unworthy manner, lest you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Why judgment? Because law and blood come together in the covenant. If we abuse our covenant with Christ, covenantal sanctions come on us upon God's church. The new covenant in Scripture is given to us in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews chapter 8. And what's the nature of the new covenant? Many people think the cross is the new covenant. The cross is not the new covenant. The cross is the means of the new covenant. It's the ratification of the new covenant. It's the signature on the covenant document. The new covenant is that God's law will no longer be written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh right in our hearts. That's the new covenant. You take this law of His kingdom that will no longer now be a bill of indictment against us, condemning us, but will now be our desire and our delight written right into our very hearts as God's people. Now, we may find the requirement of obedience to ancient law difficult in our day because we carry most often in our culture the rather absurd notion that what is new is to be valued more than what is old. And as somebody who drives a Gran Turismo Americano from 1991, I know that to be false. Just because something is newer doesn't mean it's better, does it? If something is old, does that disqualify it from being relevant? See, most of our generation today suffers from chronological snobbery, which is, if it's latest, it's best. If it's newer, it must be better. And so people talk about progressivism as though somehow history's been this starting out in a primitive cave, grunting like an ape, up now to the pinnacle of man's self-realization. 
in the 21st century. Nothing could be further from the truth. Antiquity is not a uh, disqualification for the truth and relevance of moral precept. Just because I've been born and you've been born in a century of legal revolution against the Bible doesn't mean we've made progress, does it? Things can go in two directions. Just because things are a certain way in society at present doesn't mean they should be that way or that they cannot be other than they are. Repealing laws, for example, in our culture, as we have done over the past 60 years against blasphemy, sodomy, abortion, various types of divorce, and so forth, may be modern ideas and development, but that doesn't make them true or beneficial to society. The Christian must always regard God's Word as superior to all other statements or claims to moral truth. After all, our God does not change. Burnside, the man I quoted earlier from the legal scholar from Bristol, acknowledges, he says, we find in biblical judgments and rules a level of insight that has rarely, if ever, been surpassed. Nor do we find in any other legal system a more positive vision for humanity and the world than that found in the biblical collections. We should not assume that what is, is inevitable, especially when it is wrong. Biblical law reminds us that the world can be other than it is and that the actual is merely the possible. What is, is only one possible way of looking at the world. And the way that most people look at the world today is that law has very little connection with, with morality or with justice. When you go to law school, you don't go to justice school, you go to literally law school, which is what are the sociological laws that we currently have in place and how should we handle them and what precedent is there and so on and so forth. Law in the non-Christian worldview becomes merely a means of controlling and pointing society in a particular direction. Now, God has a particular direction for our lives, for our family, for our society, for our culture in mind. Some of you are looking at me bemused. Well, let me put it to you this way. Why did Jesus go to the cross? We all believe in the power of the atonement, do we not? We all believe that we need the cross of Jesus Christ. Why did he go there? To redeem us from all lawlessness. Because we've broken God's law, and as a result, we're under the condemnation of death and under the penalty of the wrath of God. Now, Christ goes to the cross, and He bears the curse of the law in our stead, according to Scripture, in terms of our relationship with God, restores us to righteousness in Jesus Christ, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can now commit idolatry, adultery, lie, steal, cheat, and everything else, so that we don't have to worry about God's law anymore. Is that right? Or is it so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are conformed to the image of His Son, that's Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly? Now, if I'm, let's go back to my illustration, if I'm driving home tomorrow, speeding on the uh, 401, and the officer pulls me over, and I wind down the window, he says, what do you think you're doing? I'm impounding your vehicle, etc., etc., and I say to him, what do you mean? Christ died for my sin, you can't touch me. What's he going to do? He's going to think, well, this guy's lost his mind. He thinks because he goes to church, he can do 200 KMs down the 401. 
No, the, our relationship to God's law stands on the social level. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy 1. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. It's not made for the righteous man in the sense that a man who is living in terms of God's righteousness, well, the law isn't going to... It's his desire and delight. He loves it. He lives in terms of it. Now, in terms of our relationship with God, we're no longer under, we're under grace. That's what the Scripture says. So that the condemning power of the law, in terms of our relationship with God, has been set aside. But that does not mean that you can murder and commit adultery and lie, and, does it? In fact, Scripture says that if you live like that, as your way of life, you're not a Christian at all. You don't know God. No idea who He is. Now, none of this means that there are no new applications of law to new situations. Obviously, God's law was given in an ancient society. Jesus is expounding it in a, in a society that's 2,000 years old. We, have, we encounter different situations. It's not a wooden or static thing. As one uh, theologian has pointed out, the law is given as principles, the Ten Commandments, and as cases, the detailed commandments or the case laws in the Bible, and its meaning is to be hammered out in experience and in trial. This does not mean that the law is a developing thing, but that man's awareness of its implications develops as new situations bring fresh light on the possible applications of the law. The psalmist in Psalm 119 clearly t saw the law as a positive force in his growth and in his ability to stand up to the adversities of history. You know, the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. I don't think that's a mistake. And Psalm 119, like Psalm 19 and like Psalm 1, is a celebration of the law of God. I would encourage you to meditate for the next week on Psalm 119 and see if you love God's righteousness in the way that the psalmist does. Biblical law presents itself to us then as a journey into wisdom in which we are introduced to the essentials of righteousness and justice. And this comes up in all kinds of places in Scripture. For example, the book of Proverbs. Who likes reading the book of Proverbs? Yeah, lots of us. Because it's practical. We like practical things. Men like practical things. Right? But the book of Proverbs is simply an application of God's law from a father to a son. That's all it is. He takes God's law and he reduces it to wise sayings to instruct his son. So you have these various genres in the Bible, songs of praise like the Psalms, in, uh, detailed instructions from a father to a son in the book of Proverbs, uh, case laws in Exodus and Deuteronomy, and the Ten Commandments in summary in Exodus 20 and, and Deuteronomy 5, where you have a summary of the law, and then the rest of the Scriptures unpack what those things mean, i.e., how do you know what adultery is or idolatry is if you don't have case laws which show you what that actually means? So Jesus in his great sermon on the mountain, helps us understand what a murderous heart is really like, what an adulterous heart is really like. Thus, God's vision for all societies of men is that they are accountable to God and His law. St. Paul said this, 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 3, 19 through 20. But of course, just in case people think that Paul might be setting aside the law, what does he say at the end of the chapter? Do we then abolish the law by faith? No. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So the apostle in Romans 3 cites the law as a collection of God's commandments and wisdom from all over the Bible. He's actually quoting from the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Isaiah in that short passage. And don't forget that Jesus, when he faced the temptation of the devil as a man, just cited the book of Deuteronomy. He didn't say in the face of temptation, I feel this, I sense that, my interpretation of this is the following. He says, it is written. So if God's law is good enough for Jesus, even in the defeating of the temptation of Satan, why is it not good enough for us? You still glad I've come to this conference, or you still good? Okay, good. Man's social accountability to God's law, then, is also made plain to us in the abiding civil use of the law in 1 Timothy 1, 8-11, which we've read together. It's not just that the law shows us our sins so that we're pointed to the cross, so the law, like a mirror, shows us we're guilty. And then we don't wash in the law. We don't say, right, I'm guilty. How can I clean myself with the law? We can't. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The law sends us to Christ as a schoolmaster, sends us, trains us, directs us to the Lord Jesus so that we can be justified by faith in Him. The law also then is a standard or a benchmark by which we look at our lives and say, how am I doing in the Christian life? James calls it the perfect law of liberty. A look at the perfect law of liberty, because it's where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. The Spirit of God has put His law in our hearts. That's where freedom is. Liberty isn't being free from the law, it's being bound to God's law to be the blessed men of God. The third use of the law is the civil use of the law, which Paul talks about here in 1 Timothy 1. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this. The law is not laid down for the just, but the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Paul here cites several laws from what we call the Decalogue, crimes mainly from the Old Testament. He says this is a legitimate use of the law. But I want you to notice something in particular. He says that this is in accordance with the glorious gospel. He says this is sound doctrine, 
And it's in accordance with the glorious gospel, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Paul doesn't say, oh, well, that's old law now. I'm a gospel man. It's all grace. The good news, part of a declaration of the good news is, as we've said, the announcement, the evangelist, that Christ the King is on his throne. And as a king, he doesn't just have the atonement made available to us. He's given us, as a gift of grace, his law. Because any, the relationship between us and the law is still one of God's grace to us. Any agreement, covenant between a lesser and a greater is not like our marriage covenant. If you go home today and tell your wife, our covenant of marriage was an act of grace on my part. You see how that goes over. No, it was a covenant between equals. Now, I don't, mean the, I don't mean absolute equality in sense of the relationship. There is headship is clear in Scripture. There is mutual service unto Christ. We have an obligation and a responsibility before God, and with that headship comes an, the added responsibility that we have to love our wives and so forth and serve them. But it is essentially a covenant between equals. When God makes a covenant with us, it isn't between equals. He doesn't ask you what the law of the universe ought to be. Has God ever asked you permission about that? Now, let me just, Joe, I just wanted to discuss with you. I've had this idea about um, you know, covetousness. What do you think? It is not a discussion. God's word is a command word because he's God. By right of creation and redemption, he commands us. He doesn't just give us advice. He commands us. And as such, when God gave His law, it was, a gift, it was an act of grace. It's not the source of life, but He says, this is the way of life. Walk in it. You think about when Jesus was doing evangelism. This is going to mess with your head. When they came to Him and they said, good teacher, what must we do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus say? Well, you need the four spiritual laws. Or did he say, uh, no, accept, believe, commit, A, B, C. Just walk through this, we say the sinner's prayer, and we're good. Now, I'm not knocking the four spiritual laws. They have their place. I'm not locking, encouraging people to accept, believing, helping people to understand the rudiments of the gospel. What I'm saying is that is not the way Jesus answered that question. You know what Jesus said? He says, what does the law say? Now, what kind of evangelism is that? What does the law say? And when the guy rattled off several of the commandments, he says, do this and you'll live. How's that an announcement of the gospel? Well, of course, Jesus was showing in this that the man who self-righteously thought himself to be a law, all these I've done since I was a child. When he said to him uh, in that particular instance, go away, uh, um, go sell what you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. It says the man went away sad because he had much wealth. He was in the grip of idolatry. So Jesus showed men the law so that they recognized their need of his atoning grace. Now it's true, if you can do the law of your own strength, you will live. But the only man ever able to do that was Jesus Christ. And that's why death had no hold on him. That's why he was raised to life, because 
de- the power of sin is death. Now, a sinless man who has walked perfectly in the law of life, he's going to live. Now, Christ, by his power, as the true living Torah, who lived and worked righteousness in all things, paid the debt in our stead. He was the only man in credit with God. And now, he gives us his righteousness and the power of the Holy Spirit that we might live like he did. As a true man. As God's mountain men. The men of God who walk in terms of his law. And this was the claim that Israel itself made for its social significance on the world stage where there were all kinds of great powers and empires at the time when you see Israel walking their way through history in the Old Testament. There was the famous law code of Hammurabi in the ancient Near East. Christopher Wright, the missiologist, though, observes about Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 9. He says this, The Old Testament law explicitly invites, even welcomes, public inspection and comparison. But the expected result of such comparison is that Israel's law will be found to be superior in wisdom and justice. This is a monumental claim, and indeed the humaneness and justice of Israel's system Overall social and legal system have been favorably commented on by many scholars who have done the most meticulous studies of comparative ancient law, and its social relevance can still be profitably mined today. From our missiological perspective, these verses, he says, articulate a motivation for obedience to law that is easily overlooked but highly significant. The point is that if Israel would live as God intended, then the nations would notice. Here we find that at least one aspect of that blessing of the nations would be by providing such a model of justice that the nations would observe and ask questions. So what it says there in Deuteronomy 4 is that the question is put, who has laws like our laws? Who has a God like our God? And that when we live in terms of obedience to God and His Word, people will look and say, who are these people? Look at the righteousness and justice and holiness, and meekness, and mercy, and compassion manifest in their lives. And that's when people will ask you about the hope that's in you. The church's failure to generally understand the relevance of this biblical vision to our present social crisis leaves many of us without critical tools for kingdom work and service. And it leads, has led to moral confusion and arbitrary moral judgments, especially among young people who are utterly confused about ethics today and morality. They don't know whether they're coming or going. Because they hear one thing in school and in the university and pumped through the media and something entirely different from a faithful pulpit. They've got a hybrid, they have a hybrid worldview. They're not sure how the pieces fit together. And if the church ceases to teach faithfully God's Word and God's law, what we're saying is other gods can rule over us, another source of sovereignty, another law can rule over our lives. And in such a context, justice and injustice themselves become impossible to define. Look, if we have, if the state... You see, I've read to you the coronation oath of Queen Elizabeth II. 
I've shown you how the United States was founded and on what basis in terms of God's law. Talked about the origin of English common law, which governed our lives. That law, in terms of our freedom to live in terms of it, was hard won. Very hard won. Sacrifice after sacrifice. The Cromwellian period, for example, finally ended the absolute power of the monarchy, where the monarchy said, well, I rule by divine right, and I don't have to be under law. I'm above the law. But biblical faith held all men, kings and commoners alike, accountable to God's law. Because God is sovereign. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Now, the reason they could do that is because they accepted who Christ claimed to be and they appealed to his law as a law that is above the law of the state. Now, you take away that law for a moment and imagine that actually we don't have a clear revelation of God's law. We have only the law of the state. And we say that the state need not look to God at an absolute standard, but in fact, Law can be merely a developing, evolving thing in history by which men, elite men, who know what's best for the rest of us, the plebs, right, who think that they know best, will sociologically reconstruct our society in terms of their will. And so they will redefine marriage, redefine the family, redefine gender. I mean, think about that for a moment. How do you redefine gender without a denial of reality? How can there be 14 gender identities? How can I self-identify as a woman? This is just nonsense. But when you legislate, when parliaments and senates put that into law, what you have is tyranny. The word tyranny literally means to rule without God. That's the origin of the word, to rule without God. What appeal, if you deny God's law, what appeal do you have beyond the state for justice? You wouldn't even be able to define tyranny. How do you know if the state makes law as the new sovereign, then it is divine. It is God. This is what Hegel, the German philosopher, said. The state is God, the divine idea as it exists on earth. So then the state will say, well, we will redefine, we will define all of these things. You and I then, if we do not have God's law, have no appeal beyond the state. Justice is what they say it is. Truth is what they say it is. Gender is what they say it is. Marriage is what they say it is. And you are mentally ill. That's what the state says today about you. That's what the educators say about you. You are mentally ill. Your parents, your grandparents, they were all mentally ill. They were homophobic. And that is the inevitable result of the jettisoning of God's law. If we do not have God and His law, we do not even know what justice is. And we have no appeal beyond the arbitrary power and claims of the state. We are back to the battle that we thought we'd won 500 years ago. Is Jesus Christ Lord or Caesar? But if God's law disappears in the life and from the life of the church, there isn't any hope for our society. Whoever teaches and does these things shall be called great 
in the kingdom of heaven. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.